Check Me Out is a production of Panhandle PBS and Amarillo College's FM 90 and is recorded at AC's Washington Street campus. In my college class, there were so many of my, my friends that were like, oh, this is such a great love story. I'm like, this, you have a very poor vision, an unhealthy vision of what relationships should be like. Mm-hmm. I threaten to stage interventions. If anyone <laughs> leaves the class maintaining that it is still a good love story, like, no, you will not leave this room until we ha- sit in a circle and change your mind about this because you cannot go into the world with these unhealthy ideas. <laughs> you will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this. Welcome to Check Me Out, a podcast for book lovers. My name is Hillary Holsey, and I am the host for today. And we are talking today about Victorian era novels. It is appropriately titled Keep Austin Weird. <laughs> uh, so before we get started talking to our guests, uh, I'd like to go and around and int- have you introduce yourself. So I'll start with the lovely lady on my right. Oh, well, well you're both you on my right. So. Okay. Um, I'm Stacy Clopton Yates, and I am the public relations coordinator for the Amarillo Public Library and a lover of Victorian novels. I'm Monica Smith Hart. I'm associate professor of English at WT, and I teach. Romantic and Victorian British literature. So this is this is my happy place. Yeah, well, we're glad to have both of you here today. And I mean, this will be more of a casual discussion about Victorian. I mean, if you can be casual about it, surely you can. But for those of who don't know what Victorian era novels mean, how would you describe that to someone? You want me to take that one? I you think you take should that take that one, okay. one Monica. <laughs> well, technically, I mean, if we can define it, of course, just by those novels that were written when Victoria was on the throne, which is 1837 to 1901, and things written in Britain. And this is where it gets really interesting, is because Britain, of course, in the 19th century, is the empire on which the sun never set. So if you were looking for things written in English, they might come from Britain, they might come from Canada, they might come from Australia, they might come from the West Indies and they're all English, they're all Victorian, but they're not all from England. So I did not know that. <laughs> That's very cool. Do you have anything to add so, to that, Stacey? So just as, as a sort of point of clarification then, mm-hmm. um, a novel, an American novel written in that time period would not be considered Victorian. You will need to contact an Americanist about that. <laughs> <laughs> it is my understanding, no, that Vic, that um, an Americanist probably would not use that term because it refers to the British throne, and we are no longer part of Britain at that point. Okay. Um, they probably have their own 19th century terminology. Okay. I'm, I'm trying to think of what it would be, what we would call it. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, if y'all I don't, don't know, know, I don't know. <laughs> Sorry. You're Sorry. Good. I, I digress. <laughs> so we wanted to specifically highlight female authors from that era. Yes, so please. I was wondering if both of you would tell us who your favorite is and why. So we'll start with Monica. Yeah, you go first. Oh, goodness. Um, my favorite. Okay, I'm going to pull a fast one here. Um, my favorite Victorian female novelist, I'm going to say Charlotte Bronte. Uh, then I'm going to also expand it to say my favorite 19th century female novelist tied with Jane Austen so I'm gonna get two Bronte and Austen and I love Jane Austen too now we we could have quite a a conversation about the Brontes because (laughs) 
She's Be- team Anne. Monica I'm team Charlotte. is team Charlotte, <laughs> and I am team Anne. I'm still waiting for the t-shirts, but they're they're on the way. Um, I I love Anne Bronte. I think she is the most. Uh, I think she's the most talented. I love her books more than I love Emily's or Charlotte's. Um, and I also have a tendency to love the underdog. So the fact that she's been dissed so thoroughly by history makes me makes me love her. Um, but I also. Um, I also really love George Eliot, mm-hmm. who is a woman. Um, I forget her real name. Marianne she... Evans, I think. Thank you. Yeah, I don't thank know why you. I remember that, but I do. Because you're brilliant. <laughs> oh, thank you. So, uh, yeah, I, I really love George Eliot is another one I would mention. And yeah. George Eliot was Middlemarch. Um... Yes. yes, Middlemarch and also Silas Marner, mm-hmm. um, which I loved. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved Mil- Middlemarch more because it's just such a great book. And I love the characters. I think they're so multidimensional. And, so, and, and the expanse of the characters that inhabit this little town that George Eliot created. So I love that one. But I also think Silas Marner is wonderful because it's a really great introduction to George Eliot. It's a shorter novel. It's a little less daunting if you're thinking about taking on a new author. Um, if, for George Eliot, I'd probably tell people to start with Silas Marner. What do you think? Silas Marner used to be taught all the time. I remember reading it like ninth grade, I think. I don't know if it's still on in, in curriculum for junior high and high school but it used to be it was mm-hmm. very much a kind of starter novel and mm-hmm. it's a great one absolutely i love mm-hmm. it not to my knowledge i haven't seen it it was not in the curriculum when i was in school but oh, okay. i i read it on my own so um so well, we had, what about you oh your favorite victorian era well i don't actually know probably I think I'm going to have to go Team Charlotte. I know that you're going to really get upset with me, but so sad. <laughs> I, I have not given Anne the the chance that I should. Okay. We will get to Anne here okay, in a moment. We'll I, I will, we <laughs> will give her her spotlight. But before we do that, I kinda, I'm glad you brought up George mm-hmm. Eliot because mm-hmm. that ties in with this whole female presence and authorship. Mm-hmm. Why? I mean, her name is a, a male right. name. Mm-hmm. Can you all talk a little bit about that and, and maybe you know, why that was important for her during the time? Um, what what was going on for women mm-hmm. at that time? Well, you know, there's a there's a really interesting story about Charlotte Bronte, actually. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Emily and Anne are part of it. Um, when, of course, the, the sisters and their brother Branwell, they all started off writing short stories and poetry. And when they were beginning to sort of explore the idea of publishing of going out into the public world charlotte wrote a letter to robert southey who was at the time poet laureate and asking his opinion of their verses and and whether they should publish and he wrote this infamous letter back to her saying that basically your poetry is fine but quote literature cannot and should not be the business of a woman's life it will render you unfit for the life you're supposed to lead of course, the Bronte sisters did publish, but when they initially did, they did it under male pseudonyms. Their nom de plumes were Kerr, Acton, and Ellis Bell. Uh, a direct response to Southey, protective move on their part, who knows? But there is, ironically, at the same time you've got incredibly famous female novelists over the course of the 18th century moving into the 19th century. You got Fanny Burney, you got Anne Radcliffe, you got Charlotte Smith, these big names that sort of make the novel what it is. 
there's a real prejudice against not only women entering into the public sphere, but against the novel. The novel is considered a lesser literary form than poetry. So it's if you're a woman novelist, well, you're really working at a deficit there. <laughs> and I've actually always thought that was interesting because when Jane Austen published her first novel, she, they, they didn't put her name on it. But they did say it was written by a lady. They didn't you know, feel the need to hide behind a masculine identity to publish that novel. And that's early in the 19th century, not actually part of the Victorian. So it all, it's always struck me as weird that you move into the Victorian era and it becomes even harder for women to come forward and say, I am a creative force. And yet there's a woman on the throne of England. You would think that this would be a time that women would be able to come into their own more. And that wasn't the case. Mm -mm. Do you have any insight onto why that is? Oh, how much time do we have? <laughs> As much as you need. You can expand no, on this. That's totally I mean, fine. Gender politics in the 19th century are incredibly complicated. And they're so very, in so many ways, so many so relatable to challenges that we face today. And yet at the same time, the culture is radically different. I'll give one example. Um, if for some reason a couple decided to divorce and they were able to do so, remember that it takes an act of parliament to divorce during the Victorian era. You don't just go to a lawyer and get a divorce. Uh, the children almost inevitably, without exception, went with the father. There was no discussion of the children going with the women. They were the property. They were under the care of the father. When I teach novels and tell my students this, they are inevitably just sort of flabbergasted. What do you mean? I'm like, the mother's just discounted. So it's... Gender politics in the 19th century are very complicated. <laughs> so I'll just end it there. <laughs> but and unfortunately, uh, having a woman on the throne did not seem to advance the cause of women very much, at least in the literary, in the literary sphere. Well, I mean, Victoria, Victoria wrote and published, but she wrote and published in a, an accepted feminine form if you will. And I mean, we have to remember she was the great middle class queen, right? She was the great mother of many, right? And she spent all of those years mourning her husband. So she was, she was a powerful monarch to be sure, but she was unlike her most famous predecessor, Elizabeth I. She was not a queen of wartime and queen of the battlefield. She was a different kind of monarch. Mm -hmm. So how then does this bleed into your female characters? Like what? What is? How does that dynamic enter into these these novels and these stories? When you have female authors writing from that perspective or putting that into the female characters, what do you see come out of that? Well, I think one of the one of the things that strikes me, at least about some of the ones that I have um, that I've liked the most, is writing characters who discover their ability to have agency you know they're they're most of the characters that i think of in victorian novels don't start out thinking i'm strong i know what i want i'm going to do what i want but they grow into themselves and i think that must be something that that must have that would have mattered to a woman author to mirror their own journey their own ability to create a person that they wanted to be and to show how hard it was to become a person who had their own agency and their own ability to make decisions about their own life. Yeah, Austin does that beautifully, right? I mean, Pride and Prejudice. I mean, one of the things that I think makes Pride and Prejudice still so appealing is that it's it's so funny. It's so 
funny, right? I mean, the right. Bennett sisters are hysterical. The Bennett mother is an absolute <laughs> fool. <laughs> and we all know her on some level. And we see Lizzie Bennett trying to deal with these realities of what it's like to live in this small town, be one of the gentry families, be one of the country families, and try to be a fully realized person in this culture, dealing with all of these pressures. And Mr. Bennett is very funny. He's he, I don't I don't I always approve of Mr. Bennett, but Mr. Bennett is funny. And I, I do think one of the reasons Pride and Prejudice survives so well is because there's really witty characters. Oh sure. And I it's one of the things about Jane Austen that I think is interesting that all of her writing is funny. And all of her writing is witty, but not all of her characters are witty. Lizzie is witty. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I personally think Henry Tilney is the only one of the romantic leads in Jane Austen's writing who, who has a sense of humor. And I, he's, he's my favorite for that reason. So it, it's funny that a lot, of the, a lot of the wit and humor in her books comes from the, the voice of the narrator more than the voice of the characters. Mm-hmm. I knew Mrs. Bennett growing up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that I had some Mrs. Bennetts in my family <laughs> who were a little too invested in, you know, who I dated and who I married. And it sort of makes these characters incredibly present and relatable, even though they're 200 plus mm-hmm. years old and they're from a different time and a different place. There is this way that they are, they're familiar in some not necessarily mm-hmm. great ways. <laughs> but, you know, going back to your char- your question about the characters, I do think, th- I don't know if that's something that, that novelists of the era would have said they struggled with, but it is something that sometimes reading them from a 21st century perspective, I look back and I was, I think, you're not very kind to the women. Even, mm-hmm. even a woman writing, you're not... Jane Austen, I will say, she creates as many ridiculous male characters as she does female characters, but she Mm -hmm. creates a lot of really, really silly women. Oh, Catherine Moreland, Northanger Abbey, Mm -hmm. right? No one would have ever suspected Catherine to be born a heroine. No kidding. (laughs) Truer line has rarely been written because she is not heroine material, and yet (laughs) she is our heroine, and we love her even though we know that she's, oh, bless her. Right. (laughs) Not the sharpest tool in the shed. Right. I was thinking of of also um, the characters in some of the other novels, like in Sense and Sensibility, you come across some women who are just, they're not that bright, they're airheaded, they're um, concerned about all the wrong things. Mm -hmm. And, And I wonder sometimes about an author who felt like they had to create a lot of very silly women to make one or two women more more witty, more intelligent, more uh, uh, stronger characters. Well, I think it's, you know, it, is she is she accurately reflecting her world? I mean, that's a huge question with Austen and the kind of brand of realism that she's she's beginning to develop and we're seeing develop into the 19th century. And how much is something like Pride and Prejudice or Sense and Sensibility a an accurate reflection of what it was like to live in that world where where women were judged by the feminine accomplishments how well can you sing how well can you embroider how well can you draw how well can you speak french you know can you run a household these kinds of things <laughs> um so so being performing that idea of sensibility and this kind of excessive silliness and emotion that was money in the social bank at that mm-hmm. period and being 
a woman who is intellectual or who is well-read or who is well-versed in politics or history, and not going to get you very far mm-hmm. in that world. So it's you know, so how much is it that she's that she's highlighting these characters like Lizzie who are intelligent, and how much of it is 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 Austin saying these women really feel alone <laughs> because they are in the minority in this culture, and I mm-hmm. I can't answer that. I just I think that's a question with mm-hmm. her. Another characteristic that I think is important to address is class. There are certain things, I mean, I'm remembering this from like high school, so if I'm totally off on this, just (laughs) tell me, but we talked a lot about class and class is thematic, I mean, even obviously in male authors as well, but how does that differ perhaps for the female authors versus the male authors? Mm. Does it, or are they all facing the same things? I think that women authors probably had more of a sense that they had fewer paths to travel. You know, if you're talking about a male author, particularly writing male characters, if you're born into a lower class, it's going to be hard for you, but not impossible for you to become a success. It's not going to be easy, but there there are, again, paths. There are avenues. You can get a job. You can become an apprentice. You can, you know, hopefully at some point if you apprentice, you might be able to take over your master's business. There are, there are paths for women. It's basically get married. It's basically marry well and hope that you can marry well. And you're going to be, so many of those paths are going to be cut off to you. You know, in uh, in Emma, in Jane Austen, as is one of the great examples of that, that Emma's the character who's matchmaking all of her friends and wants to, you know, pair everybody off. And she has this friend that she wants to marry off. And she's decided, because it suits her purposes to do so, that her friend is probably a gentleman's daughter. Her friend must be from an upper class, and therefore she can pair her off with someone from her own class. And then when it turns out that that's wrong, all of a sudden now, well, you know, maybe you should marry that farmer after all. And and it ends happily because Harriet actually loves the farmer, so it's okay. But even that is is quite a commentary on the classes. When when she was thinking that, that Harriet was a gentleman's daughter, that, oh, you can't possibly consider marrying a farmer. So mm-hmm. to, to be a woman and you know, be comfortable and, and survive. You had to marry well, but you had to, you had this narrow scope of potential suitors. I want to ask a clarifying question before you touch on that. Mm -hmm. Austin bridges romantic era into. Austin is really interesting when she was writing her novels. She's actually a contemporary of what we would consider early romantics like Charlotte Smith, William Wordsworth, William Blake, Samuel Taylor Coleridge. When her novels are published, she's publishing in the 1810s, which makes her technically a Regency era writer. Now, 50, 75 years ago, we taught courses on Regency literature that has been collapsed into either romantic era literature or Victorian, depending on how people teach it. So she really is this border figure. And it 
it, a great deal of it has to do with individual programs and professors and how they want to. Do they want to see her as sort of wrapping up the 18th century or do they want to see her as starting us off into the 19th? In high school, mm-hmm. I, I learned that she was Victorian era. And then mm-hmm. when I went to college, it was like they were talking about her as like a romantic era. And mm-hmm. I was like, I was either taught wrong or I don't I don't know. So I wanted no, to clarify. No, you weren't. It's, I mean, it's a huge question. Romanticism as as a literary era for years was defined by six writers, all white, all male, all English, and all poets. And it really wasn't until the past 40 years that people like, oh, Mary Shelley and Jane Austen started showing up in Anglo-American scholarship and were reintroduced into these discussions. It's like, you know, Two of the most successful, most famous, and most well-received for, in their, their time and ours just vanished just vanished from scholarship and from from education which means they vanished from readership and now they're they're back with a vengeance I sorry love mary shelley so much oh we can talk about uh, shelley too <laughs> we can talk about everything she well, because she published in both eras so she we, she works too okay well maybe we'll talk about her in a little bit um so if you want to touch on what stacy oh, was sure, talking class. about with class yes absolutely two things come to mind number one with jane austen there's this specter that haunts all of Austen's novels, and that specter is war. England is at war during the time when every one of these novels is set, and yet we never talk about war in the novels. If we do, it's only a character like Lydia Bennett planning a tryst with a soldier. Right? I mean, that that is the extent to which this very real political and class-based reality sort of appears in the novel in that way. Then you move forward into the 19th century and you get someone like Elizabeth Gaskell, who's writing Mary Barton, who's writing North and South, that are explicit sort of social problem novels and are overtly concerned with class issues and gender issues in a way that we don't see with somebody like Austen. Now, were people in the 18th century doing it before Austen? Yes. Are people doing it after her? Yes. But she is, she's really unique in her her class treatment. Um, one more thing and then I'll shut up about this because this is one of my favorite <laughs> subjects. Um, one of the things that film versions about Austen makes really, some versions do. Emma Thompson's script, The Angli, Sense and Sensibility does a nice job of this. Manfield Park does a nice job. Is you see the armies of people who were necessary to keep these nice gentry families in the style to which they had become accustomed that we never hear about in the novels. Somebody's making those dresses, somebody's ironing them, somebody's doing their hair, somebody's maintaining those households, and they are invisible in the novels. So there is an element to English class structure at the time that Austen does not touch with a 10-foot pole. Victorian writers, sort of high Victorian writers, will deal with it much more directly. Some great dramaturgy going on there. Someone must have like told them we have to include this in, in the film adaptations. Mm-hmm. I think that's important. You're, I, I absolutely agree. Jane Austen stays away from that for the most part. But I do remember there's that thing in Pride and Prejudice where Mr. Collins shows up and they're they're eating dinner and he says, which of my cousins prepared this lovely meal? And Mrs. Bennett is like, we are quite able to afford a cook. Sorry. I just wanted to throw that in there because it was just such a uh, an example of, yes, we're impoverished. Yes, when my husband dies, you're going to throw us all out on our ear because you're inheriting this estate. But we are able to afford a cook. Yeah. But we never meet the cook. No, we certainly don't. <laughs> we never, we, she is, she's there, 
but she's not she's not named. She's not part of the story. Right. Right. So what other prominent themes can y'all pull out of these particular novels that you think are worthy of mention? Well, let's talk about Mary Shelley. Let's talk about Frankenstein. And let's talk about the fact that all the women end up dead. Yes. (laughs) Talk about women not faring well in these novels. I mean, that's one of the great sort of... If you're looking for that, if if you're looking for a relationship between a female author and female characters, um, Mary Shelley is really complicated for that because she she does her exploration of science and technology and humanism and all of these things through these two male characters, mm-hmm. and the women are expendable um, in some literal, visceral, frightening ways. It's interesting to see. I think when you go to Barnes and Noble to buy Frankenstein, how very often it's housed in the science fiction section uh-huh. or sometimes even in the fantasy section. And I think, hmm, this is a precursor of modern sci-fi and what that says about women and gender roles and science fiction and fantasy. That's another podcast. Well, do you think that some that that is a practical decision on Mary Shelley's part that that I can tell my story and my story will be better received if it's told through male eyes or did it have to do more with having lost her own mother that she didn't have a lot of women that role models for example to to build characters around well to do what she does in Frankenstein with Victor she simply couldn't have done it with a female character because women couldn't attend university. And if attending university and having this kind of scientific training is part of what she wants to do, mm-hmm. she has no other option there. It, Mary- and it's also possible that she didn't want to create, um, because Victor Frankenstein is such a horrible character. I mean, he's just <laughs> he's so awful. He's you awful. just want to slap him over and over and over again no, and sit down and give him Victor. a stern talking to. I know. And so maybe maybe she didn't want to create that. She wanted that kind of character to be a man. I'm not going there. <laughs> I, I think it's hard to know what is just symptomatic of the time and the culture mm. versus what is an actual choice for right. the author. I mean, we could speculate that all day with, you know, do they just do these to the female characters because, you know, maybe they don't respect themselves as women? I don't know. Because you were kind of talking about, like, they're kind of horrible to women in their own books. But is that because that's how they felt is it because they're trying to make a statement mm-hmm. and and i don't know i don't know that i would say that all of them are no more, no no but no for for example um going back to george Eliot, i actually think um in her books the women come off pretty well mm-hmm. um i'm totally blanking out on the name of the main character in middle march but Dorothea? Thank you. Thank you. It's so good to have a literature professor here. <laughs> Just okay. don't ask me the title of anything, because that's what I can't ever remember. It's, um, a, it's a real difficulty in my profession. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, I, I I think Dorothea is just fascinating because she starts out as this woman who is really smart, but also kind of silly. 
you know, she has this idea. I'm just, I want to marry someone who's really smart and just help him do his research. I don't have any ideas of my own. And, you know, over the course of the novel, she becomes much more uh, self-aware and more concerned about her own well-being. And I think it's a wonderful transformation as a character. But she is absolutely the most moral character in the book. She is... Um, she's a truly good person who is trying from the very beginning to always do the right thing mm-hmm. in um, in a way that that many of the male characters are not. And I think the other female characters in the book come off pretty well. I, I don't I don't think she writes silly women in the way that Jane mm-hmm. Austen does. No. And I think even in um, we were talking about Silas Marner. Again, I'm going to forget the character's name, but the wife of the little girl's biological father, John's wife, whose name I've completely forgotten, but she was a better person than her husband and more self, uh, more aware of the ethical way to, to live in the world. Well, you know, there's another, another specter haunting the Victorian novel, and that's the, the angel in the house, right? The Coventry Patmore poem, this sort of idealization of this idealized woman figure who is supposed to be the center of the home and if the home is the center of england and england is the center of the world well little pressure there (laughs) hun you are the moral compass for the world right and it's it is incumbent upon you to keep everything centered and this is a very very real pressure and I mean, there are all kinds of conduct novels. Sarah Stickney Ellis wrote them during the Victorian era that explained to women how to be this endlessly receptive, non-needing, non-unobtrusive presence in the home and function as this moral fulcrum for everyone else to sort of radiate around. So there's there's a reason, I think, why some of the female characters in these novels seem impossibly good and too good to be true esther summerson bleak house dickens comes to mind that that was a very real pressure that these women it was an not a pressure it was an expectation that this is how you proved you were a good victorian woman is you were this thing so it, it affects it affects the literary depictions as well and we you know i think we need to be cautious about judging novels from another time and another place against our own standards right. of of feminine or female conduct um it, it it is a very different world for them and you know we we shouldn't break our arms patting ourselves on the back at our own <laughs> levels of liberation and emancipation too rapidly do you know what i mean mm-hmm. it's it's that's kind of a quicksand area when dealing with novels from the past Why don't we get to the showdown? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I say this because no. in a past episode, I believe it's titled Where is the Love? Um, we were talking about the Great American Read. Um, this is recorded on the Washington Street campus of Emerald College. We we're at PBS. PBS did this whole list last year in 2018 called The Great American Read. It was um, 100 of America's Most Beloved Books. And we invited Stacy onto the podcast. And in this episode, I think she called um, Anne Bronte the Jan Brady of 
the Bronte sisters. <laughs> um, and that was specifically for mm. Tenant of Wildfell Hall. That's one that you thought was dismissed from the list. Right. So we know that Stacy loves yes. Anne. I do. Why don't Anne. you guys defend your Bronte <laughs> sister? <laughs> well, I want to start before we start defending our sister by talking about the one who's not being defended, and that's Emily. Okay, okay. we'll talk about Emily. Nobody's, talk about Emily. Nobody's team Emily, which is kind of unfair. Um, I love Emily's poetry, and I will tell you right now that I love Wuthering Heights. It is one of the books that I love to hate the characters in mm-hmm. more oh, than any other one in the world. And inevitably, I have students who come in, and when they find out we're reading it, they say, oh, I love Wuthering Heights. It's the most wonderful love story. And no, I think, no. oh my young you Padawan, therapy. I'm going to undo that before the semester <laughs> is over. It's actually a testament to what a great writer Emily <laughs> is, was that, you know, you, you created, she created these characters that you love to hate, mm-hmm. but you certainly cannot put the book down. No. You know, you're you're reading and you're, I can't believe he did that. I can't believe she said that all the way through, but you absolutely can't put it down. She was a brilliant writer, and I agree with you about her poetry. It's beautiful. It really is. Yeah. She's a wonderful poet. I, I, in my college class, there were so many of my, my friends that were like, oh, this is such a great love story. I'm like, this, you have a very poor vision, an unhealthy vision of what relationships should be like. Mm-hmm. This I threaten to stage interventions. If anyone <laughs> leaves the class maintaining that it is still a good love story, like, no, you will not leave this room until we ha- sit in a circle and change your mind about this because you cannot go into the world these unhealthy ideas. <laughs> Heathcliff is not what you're looking for, ladies. <laughs> And Catherine, in fact, he's does? the opposite. No. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Uh, um, no, I, but it is a beautiful book. I, I loved reading it. And I, I think Emily does deserve some, absolutely. some, some, some recognition. No, she's obviously. a brilliant writer. Yes. And, and, and she, there are a number of her poems that I just love. Mm-hmm. Okay, so moving on. Okay. Let's, do we want to do, let's talk Charlotte yeah. first. You go, you start you with go. Charlotte. Charlotte. What can I tell you about Charlotte? Well, everybody knows Jane Eyre. Right? Everybody knows Jane Eyre, um, which I love Jane Eyre, just finished teaching Jane Eyre. And it is, it used to be, and this is even just in my career, and I am not that old, that I could ask at the beginning of the semester, how many of you have read Jane Eyre? And at least half of the women in the room would raise their hands because somebody gave it to them when they were a little girl. And every year that number goes down. Really? There, yes, there are fewer Aww. and fewer people in my classes who have read Jane Eyre, which I think is a tragic state of affairs and we must remedy it but i don't know that they need to read it as children but as high schoolers it would be great um there's also valette which is a lesser known charlotte bronte work and i think it is truly one of the best novels in the english language lucy snow who is the heroine of valette is mercurial complicated mysterious fascinating and at the end of it you will love Lucy Snow and you will also throw the book across the room in frustration because she is so secretive and so maddening and you want so much for her and you just aren't confident that's going to happen. So she, she Bronte, doesn't tidy up Valette in the way that she tidies up Jane Eyre at the end. And I love the ending of Jane Eyre, but the ending of Valette, there's something, I think, leaning more toward what we will see, what we what we call a sort of modern sensibility, this more complicated ending than that sort of classic Victorian everybody ends up married ending. 
that we get with Jane Eyre. I haven't read the other one. Oh, it's um, I read Jane Eyre. It's, it's very good. Wonderful. I, I read it because Monica recommended it. And <laughs> really? It is, oh yes. <laughs> That's yes, cool. It is. It is a. It is a very good book and a very good novel, and mm-hmm. I like it very much. Okay, so I, I actually do like it better than Jane Eyre. Do for, you? For, what's, do for you? what that's worth. I, Yay. Okay, so, so on the opposite end over here. Okay, so you have Anne Bronte, mm-hmm. who is the youngest of the three sisters, the youngest of all the siblings. So her first novel is uh, was Agnes Grey. It's a beautiful book. It's It's really beautiful. It's a really beautiful book, and it's also... It doesn't get the credit it deserves, uh, partly because it was published in uh, a three-volume set with Wuthering Heights. So you had Wuthering Heights in two volumes and Agnes Gray in the third volume. And Wuthering Heights, as we've discussed, is this, oh my God, you can't put this down, fierce story. And Agnes Gray is, is more sedate. But it's I think revolutionary. You know, if you look at at the story, it's the same. It's also the story of a governess, um, but you know, Jane Jane Eyre's story is about uh, a governess who goes to this wonderful house and she has a housekeeper who wants to make her feel at home and part of the family and she has a a precocious adorable charge to take care of agnes gray goes to a realistic house (laughs) where the children are horrible and the family (laughs) is horrible and the the servants are also horrible because you know you're not one of us but you're not one of the family and so to me it's almost revolutionary that Anne was willing to write this very realistic portrayal this very unflattering portrayal of the moneyed classes Mm -hmm. at that time and the other thing about Anne Bronte is and this is true of both her novels I think is that she I think she deals more with morality and ethics I think she is clearly um Clearly the most concerned with religion, but I, I just, I think she she talks about heavier subjects in her books. She's more concerned about, about morality. The Tenant of Wildfell Hall was incredibly controversial when it was published because it is, it, is, it is the story of a woman making her own way in the world, making a decision to leave an abusive husband, which was not only just not done, but illegal. And so it was incredibly controversial, but it was hugely successful. It sold out, its first printing sold out in six weeks. So it was republished with um, a new introduction by the author who defended her book very fiercely. And, and people tend to think of Anne as just being, you know, she was just meek and she was quiet and she was just that other Bronte sister. But if you read her introduction to the, the, the second printing, she's very strong in her defense of her work. And then, of course, she dies and Charlotte will not give permission for the book to be reprinted. And so it sinks into history. And it's, I think, having a, a resurgence, but I think... Part of the reason that it doesn't get the attention it deserves is because Charlotte wouldn't authorize the reprinting. And so that's one of the, you know, resentments I have about Charlotte, (laughs) you know. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, it's true. And, and, And one other thing I will say, Agnes Gray, the story of a plain woman making her way in the world as a governess was written first. 
people think of Agnes Gray as this pale imitation of Jane Eyre, but Agnes Gray was written first when the Bronte sisters were all sharing their books with one another. Anne was working on Agnes Gray, Emily was working on Wuthering Heights, and Charlotte was working on The Professor. And it was not until after she finished The Professor and Agnes Gray was also finished that she then published Jane Eyre or, or wrote Jane Eyre. So Anne also gets a bad rap as, you know, that she copied her sister and didn't do it very well. And, and I don't think she deserves it. <laughs> An impassioned defense from Team Anne. In, in all seriousness, I mean, I think you could probably acknowledge that they're all three talented and in, in their own oh, ways. Yeah. And I mean, our we've had discussions like this on the podcast before, but I think what would be an interesting thing that I want to hear from the two of you is like, what ties them all together? What mm. about their styles tie them together? Is there something that is genetic that they all kind of touch on? You know, I wish we were recording this um, this time next year because I'm actually teaching a graduate class on the Brontes in the fall (laughs) and we're reading all of the novels and all of the poetry. My graduate students don't know that yet. They're going to be terrified when they hear this, but we are. (laughs) And um, I would have a very different answer for you then. I will say this. One of the things that the young Bronte children did after they returned from their respective schooling and the four who survived after all of the trauma Mm -hmm. at their boarding schools was they because they lived in such an isolated area of Yorkshire and they had so few other playmates, they really were each other's company. And they wrote a series of stories, the Angria and Gondol tales. And some of it was poetry, some of it was stories, and they were all based on this little set of toy soldiers that Branwell, the brother, had. And a lot of their early poetry comes out of the Angria and Gondol. And then you can look at the novels coming out of the early poetry. So I think if there is something that that connects them, I think it would go back to those roots, to those four children exploring those stories, exploring storytelling in this sort of fantasy way with each other in their home. And then they branch out and go in these very different directions with it. I I would agree. I, I certainly think the isolation that they grew up with had to have an impact on their ability as storytellers because they didn't have entertainment they had to make their own entertainment. And it shows in the settings quite a bit of their books as well. You have, I think all of them that I've read, you have this sense of darkness, this sense of aloneness, this sense of isolation. And and I think that runs through all the books, no matter who's written them. You know what I don't know very much about is Branwell. I know he was an artist. Did he do much writing? He did some. Branwell had a number of problems with um, substance abuse mm-hmm. and addiction, and that pretty much consumed him. So. So to kind of wrap up this discussion, um, we're recording this on a gray, kind of murky day. <laughs> we if are. If you were speaking to someone who has never read a novel from this era and they want to cuddle up on a day like today to read, what would you recommend? There's so many great books. It's really hard to think of, of the favorite one. If you want something to complement the weather, <laughs> <laughs> read Jane Eyre. If you want something to show you the influence of these women today, 
read E.B. Zaboy's new novel, Pride. It is a retelling and resetting of Pride and Prejudice in modern-day Brooklyn. And it's pretty darn interesting. So, yeah, those would be my two. Okay, I would say something for a rainy day, something to read on a rainy day. Honestly, I would read... I would read Northanger Abbey, um, oh, which is Jane Austen. And um, again, she's she's just kind of on the cusp of the Victorian. But I I think it's so funny and I think it's uh, so gothic. And it, it's it's just I love it. It does. It's it's kind of like Anne Bronte. It doesn't get the credit it deserves for mm-hmm. being such a wonderful book. So Northanger Abbey would be a great one. Um, and, and as I said before, Silas Marner is a really good introduction. It's a really good read. I like that. And, and then move as quickly as you can on to Middlemarch. I love Middlemarch. I, I do. I do, too. It, you know, it is the one novel, I shouldn't confess this out loud, that I probably will never teach because I love it so much that if anyone in the room didn't love it as much as I did, I don't think I could bear it. And people don't like Jane Eyre, I can handle it. You know, people don't like Dickens, I can handle it. But if you don't like Middlemarch, I think it might crush my soul. So. Oh. <laughs> the terrible, I'm depriving so my students. I just I announced it. that in public, I'm depriving them of Middlemarch. Well, you know, <laughs> that's not. why they have summers. They I can... totally get it. There are some <laughs> movies that I do not touch on because I, I can't stand. Well, when you're watching them in the theater, watch it and they're not laughing at the right parts. It's like, mm-hmm. what are you doing? I like, why, this is my favorite movie. Why are you not laughing at, you know, know right. whatever. So I get it. I get it. Thank you, ladies. It was a lovely discussion, and we hope to have you back sometime. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for listening, book lovers. And remember to click subscribe wherever you may be listening to this podcast. Special thanks goes to the Mag7 for providing us with music, to Scotty Vanderford, Colin Lutz, and Stevie Brashears for designing us such a cool logo. See you next time.